so my theme is on devotion and beauty in spiritual practice. And it's such a rich, it's a rich topic. I think often of just in a surface way about uh, Plato's the true, the good, and the beautiful as encompassing what spiritual practice and Dharma is about. And there are many names for beauty. In a sense, when you're doing this practice, you're following your heart's call to what is beautiful. You could call beauty wonder or kindness or fullness. Beauty could be found in tranquility and quiet mind and what that opens up in the world around you. There could be some desire to feast on luminosity. There could be some desire or you could find beautiful going beyond knowing, the great unknowing that is letting go. Openness is beautiful, both how that manifests interpersonally and also space itself. The softness of heart, the firmness of presence, you can find that beautiful. The tenderness and gentleness that this brings out in our character gradually amplifies those qualities. Balance, dynamic balance. You may find that beautiful. You might find it beautiful to actually just be with the mind as a chaotic display, but you're not caught up in it. And so there's something beautiful about the chaos. Actually, it's chaos really is just creativity. Yeah. There's one of the ox herding pictures in the stages of Zen training is someone just um, appreciating the creativity of mind with enough equanimity that you no longer are trying to manicure or prune that mind. You're not caught up in it either. You might find integrity beautiful. For some people, I remember one um, Zen monk arguing with me that the whole point of Buddhist practice is ethics. The whole point is to keep the precepts and to act with deep integrity. And that's actually why you meditate. So for this person, that's what was beautiful. Integrity and living lightly on the earth and living principled, living in a principled way. That's what's beautiful for this person. And that was what drew them into practice. For me, it's often been spontaneity. I find spontaneity beautiful. Um, I've always loved improv improvised music for that reason, but there's a spontaneity when you are not only living from habitual patterns. It's beautiful because things come out of you that you can't expect, you can't plan and no one else can plan for them necessarily. So part of my meaning here is to understand what it is you find beautiful about Zen practice or your, your Dharma practice and to be motivated by contact with that which you find beautiful in it. 
as you've heard me say, it's not so helpful to conform to an idea that someone else has about why you should do this. Maybe you think, oh, enlightenment is the most meaningful thing because such and such Baba Guru Roshi said so. And so they look kind of wise. And so maybe I should like, I should be interested in enlightenment, but maybe you're not. Or maybe you're not interested in ending suffering, but you are interested in wonder. Or maybe you're not interested in, um, you know, the stillness of Zen, but you actually love being with the creativity of mind. Good, good. But to know what it is, somebody said, devotion is the heart's response to that which is most sublime. And that's what I'm getting at here. It would be great for all of us to shift from discipline to devotion or to have discipline and devotion work together. But what, what getting clear about what is it we're devoted to? Yeah. And that's different than uh, doing this because you believe or you have some deep intuition even that something good's going to come later. That won't actually sustain you. That is a brittle kind of faith that this is good for me and I really believe it's going to bear fruit in the future. That is not untrue. But if you're not connected with what you find beautiful about it now, it will be hard to stay engaged. I like to say should is heavy and devotion is light. Should being you wake up in the morning and you think, oh, I really should meditate for 40 minutes this morning. And you're in this kind of debate or this, um, is it a duel? You're in this dilemma between pressing your snooze button and actually getting up and doing practice. <laughs> this, I, this happens to me almost every morning. I practice every day that I can, but I try to do more than I, I am devoted to doing more but it's often a struggle between me and the snooze button. I was telling somebody one of the great cheap pleasures of being a modern human being is the snooze button. There's nothing so pleasurable as going back to sleep. And that's a metaphor for the whole path. We just love going back to sleep. But for me, because I know what I'm devoted to, and there's many things that I actually find beautiful about spiritual practice. Everything I listed was basically what I find beautiful about it. So it's kind of idiosyncratic. You might have heard, felt yourself in that list, but those are the things that I find beautiful. Wonder, kindness, fullness, silence, light, dark, and openness, all of that. And I touch that, and that's why I do it. I don't care what the Buddha would say about my practice or what actually anybody would anymore. I don't need to because I know what's beautiful about it. So some people say, well, I'm not really a devotional type. And then someone else, a teacher of mine said, um, if we don't have access to devotion, something is uh, handicapped in us, actually. That devotion is one of the first of the higher 
emotions in human beings. Now, I'm not talking about religious devotion necessarily, but the ability to invest one's heart in something. And the same teacher says the reason that we lose devotion, the reason devotion is handicapped is because we're so uh, overly rational and the rational mind comes with mistrust. The whole project of rationality arose from people rejecting the church. The Enlightenment, right? The European Enlightenment. And it's our, so it's our heritage to be suspicious of devotion. At the same time, we're starved of it. So for if one has a feeling sensibility, you could say this is about doing spiritual practice from the heart rather than the head. And that may be that you feel... You really feel what you appreciate about it when you're doing it, after you do it. You really feel that. This is multidimensional. There is a mind level of what we're doing. There's a conceptual level. There's a physical level. There's a heart level, a feeling level. There's a level beyond level. Devotion has something to do with the feeling of doing this. So it would be a good thing if we can say, I love stillness. I love the feeling of really being here, tasting. Sometimes in retreat, when I'm sitting a lot of zazen, I feel like I can taste my bones. There's the taste of the, the raw bones of existence. I love that flavor. The word philosophy means love of wisdom. To do this is amplifying wisdom. I love wisdom. I love love. We could see that the, everything we're doing in this practice is reducing, clarifying, and whittling away our obstacles to being an open heart. You could feel that. You could love the Zen teachings. It's an exquisite lineage of wisdom. It's, it's actually very stylish. I don't know about the black robes. I think those are kind of scary. <laughs> when I was at the monastery, I would be feeling how much I loved Zen, but then I would be feeling, why do we wear these like vampire robes though? This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but the lineage itself is really exquisite. The koans and the art and the style of practice. And it's one of the few religions that's willing to let go of itself. One of the few spiritual traditions that actually gets over itself. I think. So, so knowing what you love... Beauty has um, always been important in Zen practice. You've seen ikibana, the flower arrangement. Yeah, every altar in a Zen monastery has, is beautifully done, a beautiful flower arrangement. That's somebody's job. Sometimes if it's a big enough monastery, that's like their full-time job, is they're just making flower arrangements. And there's the exquisite um, 
polygraphy. Yeah, I don't know if you can see this or not. Can you all see this item here? Oh, it's kind of fuzzy. This is a, a Zen sleeping stick. This is used, this is a ceremonial version of what um, practitioners use in Japanese monasteries so that they don't fall asleep. They can, they can sit Zazen all night. And this goes under the chin. Can you see that? It's in my hand mudra. The bottom of the stick is in my hand mudra. So imagine that. And so it's holding me up. Right? That's love of wholehearted practice. That's love of not falling asleep. This hole here is because they tie them together so that every practitioner is tied to every other. So if you fall asleep, you bring your brothers and sisters down. It's love of community, of, of mystic siblinghood. So, I mean, beauty is an important part of Zen practice. And I want to touch on the Nirmanakaya. There's three bodies of the Buddha. There's the Dharmakaya, which is the mystery of openness itself. Our awareness is, awareness can be a window on that. It's not our awareness. It's still our awareness. It's not Dharmakaya. There's Sambhogakaya, which is um, the energy that arises as all things within that openness. It can be the senses, the sacredness of sensing itself. And then Nirmanakaya. So Kaya means bodies. These are the three bodies of the Buddha. And Nirmanakaya sometimes simply is taken to be forms. Things are Nirmanakaya. This is the sacred body of the Buddha. This cup or this shirt or whatever is around you. It's an understanding that the world is permeated with this mystery of presence. There is not a speck of ordinary reality anywhere. That's part of what nirmanakaya means. And these are descriptions of what it would be like to be awake. Part of nirmanakaya is this idea that the mystery dharmakaya of openness is seeking to enchant us into presence. And it does that partially through beauty. The beautiful in um, sound, form, taste, touch, whatever that is for you, it draws you into presence. Yeah. Think about how like an attractive person walks into the room and if you're attracted to that person, all of a sudden you kind of come awake. Your awareness is heightened. Or as spring is coming, the flowers wake people up. Yeah, anything, anything beautiful enchants us into presence. And so therefore the beautiful is the Dharma. It's an interesting way to think of it. Some person who's obsessed with motorcycles and finds them beautiful, maybe even erotically beautiful, they're so attracted to a motorcycle. That's the Nirmanakaya. That's the sacred using whatever form is possible to have this person wake up into how the life is sacred. They wouldn't use that word sacred. It's just a word. You see where I'm coming back, coming from? 
When sentient beings are enchanted into presence, then there's a secret Buddha communication. There's some taste of, of awakeness. I've always loved instrumental music since I was my pre-teens. And when I would listen to instrumental music, I would hear something else in it. I hear the music when I listen to music, but there's also something else. Or maybe for you, when you go hiking and you look at a mountain range or whatever it may be, it actually can be something, a piece of pottery. It could be your partner's hands. It could be the feeling of moving through water. So beauty and devotion, part of what we're doing is trusting the pull into beauty, trusting beauty as part of dharma, but looking beyond the surface of it. It's a, it's a window. I'm just looking at my notes. I think that's what I want to say about this for tonight. If you were to take this on as a, a further investigation, it would be just to really do your, do your practice that you already do and then ask yourself, what is beautiful about this to me? And can I let myself be guided by that? This is also a time to reiterate something you've heard me say before if you've been around is that it is very important that the place you practice in inspire you aesthetically. It is very important. People, um, there are whole texts that talk about the suitable, beautiful place in nature to do practice. And if it doesn't have certain qualities, it won't be uplifting and ennobling enough to, to sustain practice. Those of us who practice indoors to invest in art or objects or to make the space attractive, yeah, it, it will, if it is not um, a pleasant space, if it's not aesthetically pleasant, your practice may not be as strong as it could be. So to have objects of, of devotion, to create a little temple, even if it's just in a corner, is um, very important. 